you guys, I have announcements for you, and I don't actually remember what they are, <laughs> so I'm going to look behind us. Oh, thanks. You guys, next Sunday we get to Spring Forward. I hate it. I so hate it. Um, but if you come here and you forget to spring forward, you're going to hear some awesome music. That is all that you will hear, and we'll all know because we're going to turn ourselves around for worship. I'm kidding. Sitting and watch the 11:30 a.m. Walkers in. Okay, spring forward. Um, if it helps you at all, I will be at a retreat with high school students springing forward after having been up all night. So there's also that exciting reality for me. But um, I will be with you in spirit. Move on, Jen. Easter. Yeah, yeah, that's a woohoo. But it's also early, like. I looked at the calendar and went, whoa, we've got four weeks to get ready for Easter. So super excited. Here's what we do here at Brickview because if we all come on the same Sunday, we can't all fit here. And Easter is one of those days where we all like to come because it is really important part of our faith together to remember that Jesus, um, he died for us, but that on the third day he rose. And and everything that he promised would come true did. And um, that is what we celebrate together on Easter Sunday. And so that happens on the 31st. We'll have two identical services to choose from, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. And we will have a full kids program, including baby's room, open for both of those services. So you can choose um, from two different ones that morning. Bring your friends, bring your family. We will um, be excited to be able to celebrate with you. And then we have our connect card on your chairs. For those of you that are watching online, those are online at brickviewchurch.com. So fill those out, and um, we love to hear from you. That's all I got. That doesn't stress you out. Brooklyn, that warmed my heart. <laughs> you guys, right now, we are immersed in a culture of anxiety and depression. Are we not? Despite relative affluence, I mean, compared to previous generations, mental health issues are spiking. Like, our, our grandparents and, and great-grandparents you think about the hardships that they faced. Two world wars, the depression, social justice issues, like segregation was in full effect, like in schools, restaurants, bathrooms, buses, and much more. You guys, this was not very long ago. Our, our great and grandparents, they, our grandparents and great-grandparents, they lived through this stuff. They, they lived through a world of hardships that most of us can't even fathom. And yet, Despite vastly increasing affluence and equality and opportunities, which are all fantastic things, as a society, we are not any happier. Nathan, can you turn me down just a scotch? I feel like I'm yelling at everybody. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I, yeah, you just love my voice. Thanks. We kind of have a bro crush thing going on, so. Back to the point. As a society, we are, we're, despite lifestyle that's so much better than previous generations, we're not any happier. Um, there's this prevailing emptiness, a sadness. We live face to screen a lot more than we do face to face. And we're isolated and polarized and divided and lonely. It, it's, it's almost like humans were not designed to thrive this way. 
As fulfillment and meaning fade, anxiety and depression rise. And many of you are battling or have battled or have walked with someone battling health, uh, mental health stuff. Um, for me, I grew, I grew up with it. When I was 10 years old, my mom divorced my stepdad. And from that moment on, it was just my mom and I. And suddenly, my mom became a lot more interested in me being her buddy, her friend, than her child that she was raising. Uh, she was lonely, right? No spouse, very few good friends. And so instead of me being her child that she was raising, I just became her little buddy, her counselor. Um, she bought, just kind of brought me right into her adult world. She talked about all her stressors, all her worries, all her fears, everything. Now, I will say this. It was not all bad. Like, there were benefits that came with all of it. Like, for me, at 10 years old or so, the rose-colored kid glasses, they came off. And I started to see the world for what it is. I started to see reality. And it gave me skills that are helpful to this day, like helpful as a husband, helpful as a father, as a friend, even as a pastor. So it, it, was, it was not all bad. But at times, I was processing things that I didn't have the maturity to handle. And on top of that, my mom um, had bipolar disorder. So she could be manic, right? Talking a 1,000 miles an hour, spending money like crazy, out of touch with responsible living. And then, like it seemed like almost overnight, she'd crash into a fit of depression for, for weeks or even months. She'd go a week or two and not get out of bed or shower. And, and during the low times, she'd become suicidal. So she would go and stay in hospitals. For stretches in my teens, she'd be gone for days or even a week or more. And she, she'd be on suicide watch, and I'd be home by myself at 15, 16, 17. Eventually, they'd get her meds regulated, she'd start feeling better, and she'd, and she'd come home. But you guys, in high school, during those stretches, I was, I was on my own. And um, as many of you know, I mostly made terrible decisions. Uh, I started drinking a ton with my friends, just cutting loose. And because to me and my group of friends, that was the good life, right? That was salvation, the parties, just something exciting. And for me, the only thing tempering all of that was my love of sports. Like, I happened to be good at baseball. And I built my identity around my success. And so I felt like I needed baseball. And so that tempered the partying just a little bit. And this is kind of the way it was. It was baseball and it was parties and that was my life. Now, my mom loved me dearly and I knew it. Um, she would be at every game she could be and she was my biggest fan. She believed in me, she adored me and I felt it. Like, I was her world. Sometimes her only reason to live. In fact, sometimes she would even say, Jason, when I think of ending it, I think of you. And sometimes that's the only thing that's keeping me going. Now, that was not an awesome thought. But I heard the heart of it. Like, I received the heart of it. She loved me. Um, I was blessed in ways that many aren't. Like, I was loved, adored, supported, cherished, as flawed as she was. My mom was like my rock. She was my stability. And sometimes she would be later than I expected coming home from somewhere. And I, I just, because of all that was going on, I just couldn't help but think, she, she finally did it, right? Like she drove off a cliff. Like I'm on my own. And then eventually she would always walk through the door. And somehow with all of that going on with her, she lived into her 70s and she died from natural causes about 10 years ago. But it's not surprising that in my teens, um, I battled anxiety and depression myself because I had no foundation. Like, outside of my success as an athlete, I had no identity. I was trying to build my life on, on sand, as Jesus would say. Questions like, what if, what if I'm not good enough? Right? Like, what if I fail? Like, what if, I'm, what if it turns out that I'm, like, really ordinary? How horrible would that be <laughs> to just be ordinary? You know, what if, what if, I, don't, what if I don't matter? And so that insecurity combined with all the talk of suicide in my world, it had an effect. And I started having like suicidal ideation of my own. So one night, um, I was at a, a party at our usual spot in Muckleteo. We would go down this trail to the beach and then kind of walk down the train tracks 
we'd find some remote area along the tracks and we would drink. And then when the train came, we'd all get out of the way. Well, one night, I drank way too much and we all heard the train coming and I quietly snuck off with the idea, I'm not getting out of the way this time. Just in time, one of my friends noticed that I was gone, got a sense that something was off, which is pretty crazy given how much we were all drinking. And a team of my closest friends came looking, and they saved my life. Now, one of them was a Christian kid from a Christian family. He was a young life kid. His mom was a young life leader. And he went home that night, and he told his mom everything that went down. And that was, that was his last night of drinking with us. Like, it scared him to death. Um, not to mention there was puke everywhere, and he's like, this isn't fun. This is not the good life. Um, it scared him to death, and it woke him up, and, and he got real serious about his faith, like, all of a sudden. He got real serious about bringing me to faith, like, suddenly I was really on his mind. Now, I had absolutely no interest in Christianity or Jesus or any of it, but my friend and his small group, what they call campaigners in Young Life, these high school students that were meeting together, they just started praying for me relentlessly, and you guys... Nothing happened. <laughs> For two years, nothing happened. So we all graduated, and we all went our separate ways, and about 18 months later then, that's when Jesus broke through to me. And I'll tell you guys that over the last 31 years, Jesus has done crazy stuff in me. Like, he is constructing a different foundation for me to build my life on. It's a totally different way of viewing life than what I once knew. In fact... Jesus' vision is so different and so radical that it has taken me years to adjust to it. And I've only adjusted a little bit so far. Like, I have so much more to learn, but he's, he's up to something in me. And you guys, here's the thing. I want more of it. Like, I want as much as I can get, as fast as I can get it. And I know many of you are the same. But when I look back on the volati volatility of my life in those teen years, I, I just, when I look at our, at our culture right now, and I look at Gen Z, and I look at young people, I feel like what I was walking through so closely mirrors what I see going on everywhere. Um, just anxiety, depression, isolation, loneliness. I mean, I, I look around, and it is, it's epidemic. Now, in my teens, it, it flowed out of my inability to answer, I think, a, a really critical question, which is, what about me and my life actually matters? I mean, this question just, it would haunt me, and it was wrecking me. And you guys, apart from Jesus, I have found no satisfying answers to that question. And I still wrestle with it. It still haunts me sometimes. But here's what I'll tell you. I'm learning where to go with the question. So in this series, we're thinking about different voices, right? How do we hear God's voice among all the noise in our world? There are so many voices answering, okay, this question. What about me and my life actually matters? There's people telling you all kinds of things about you. And where we go with that question will, will determine what kind of life we live. So today we're going to look, you guys, we're going to do something a little weird. Are you ready for weird? Thank you. Good. I hope that's not because you've been bored um, other Sundays and stuff. I thought I would take that personally. It would hurt my feelings. But, uh, okay, yeah. So, but I, I appreciate the, the enthusiasm. We're going to do something a little bit weird. Um, we're going to look at this really obscure book in the Old Testament. It's called Ecclesiastes. Yes. It is this poetic, enigmatic, literary masterpiece, and it's part of um, of what scholars call the Bible's wisdom literature. So there's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and they're all books that are intended to help us ponder what is life all about and how do we live well. And Ecclesiastes begins with this in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So today we're going we're gonna to cover the entire book of Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters, it's beautiful, it's mysterious, it's poetic, and I'm going to have to summarize most of it. But I encourage you, obviously, to go read it on your own, because it is amazing literature. And so to begin, here's some background on the book. 
These are the words of a teacher or somebody that's on a quest. He's searching for something and inviting us to join him in the journey. And we're told that the teacher is a son of David. So there are different views about who this figure may have been. Some think it refers to David's son, right, King Solomon. Others think it may have been a later king from David's line. Uh, Still others, like a later teacher from Israel, who adopted a Solomon-like persona in his writing style. But whichever of these views is correct, the key thing to recognize is this. The teacher is a character in the book and is different from the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So while it's the teacher's voice that we hear most throughout the book, it's a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher, and then at the end of the book concludes it all by evaluating and summarizing everything that the teacher has just said. And you guys, the literary style of this book is it's fascinating. So the author is the one who wants us to hear all that the, th- the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So, okay, let's dive into this. What, what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message both at the beginning at, of the book and all throughout and then at the end of the book with this. Verse 2. This is really inspiring. Here you go. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, the Hebrew word translated meaningless in most translations um, is, is the Hebrew word hevel. But meaningless isn't really a, a great translation of the idea. Because in Hebrew, hevel means, like more literally, it just means s- like vapor or smoke. And the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book. So here's the idea. The idea is that life is temporary or fleeting, right? Life is an enigma. It's like a wisp of smoke. So it appears solid, but when you try to like grab onto it, it slips through your fingers. There's there's nothing there. And the idea is that there's so much beauty and goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes, and it all blows away. Or like we all have this internal sense of justice, right? But in this world, bad things happen to good people all the time because life is unpredictable and unstable. All of life, the writer's insisting, is is hevel. It's like chasing after the wind. Now, That's kind of a downer, right? So why is he saying all this? Well, the author's basic goal is to use the words of the teacher to deconstruct all the ways we try to build meaning into our lives apart from God. The teacher says we pour all this energy and emotion into things that have no lasting meaning or significance. He says that they're all hevel. They're all smoke or vapor that just passes through our fingers. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a, a couple of longer passages from Ecclesiastes today, but I'm actually going to read them from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, which is the message, because I think that it captures the beauty of, of the imagery really stunningly, and it also does a much better job with the concept of hevel than NIV or lots of the other translations. Now, we see this concept most clearly in the opening and closing poems. The first the first centers on time, and then later on it centers on death. So let's, let's look at time first. The teacher basically says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think it makes your life meaningful, but you should really stop and consider the march of time. So let's, let's read the actual words. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of the quester, okay, the teacher, the quester, the one who's on a quest. David's son and king in Jerusalem. Smoke, nothing but smoke, that's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything, it's all smoke. What's there to show for a lifetime of work, a lifetime of working your fingers to the bone? One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for our old planet Earth. The sun comes up and the sun goes down, then does it again and again, the same old round. The wind blows south, the wind blows north, all around and around and around it blows, blowing this way, then that, the whirling erratic wind. All the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never fills up. The rivers keep flowing to the same old place, and then they start over and do it again. 
Everything's boring, utterly boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. What was will be again, and what happened will happen again. There's nothing new on this earth. Year after year, it's the same old thing. Does someone call out, hey, this is new? Don't get excited. It's the same old story. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday and the things that will happen tomorrow. Nobody will remember them either. Don't count on being remembered. Let's pray. (laughs) I mean, encouraging, right? And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher, okay, or the quester, as it's translated in the message, he also keeps talking about death. So that's super uplifting. And it's a theme that sort of runs all through the book, and then you see this big section on it in a poem at the very end. Okay, the teacher says, You who are young, make the most of your youth. Relish your youthful vigor. Follow the impulses of your heart. If something looks good to you, pursue it. But know also that not just anything goes. You have to answer to God for every last bit of it. Live footloose and fancy free. You won't be young forever. Youth lasts about as long as smoke. (laughs) Honor and enjoy your creator while you're still young, before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes, before your vision dims and the world blurs and the winter years keep you close to the fire. (laughs) In old age, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. Amen? The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. The hum of the household fades away. You are wakened now by birdsong. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white. Yes, you're well on your way to eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. Life, lovely while it lasts, is soon over. Life as we know it, precious and beautiful, ends. The body is put back in the same ground it came from. The spirit returns to God who first breathed it. It's all smoke, nothing but smoke. The quester says that everything's smoke. This guy was not a good motivational speaker. (laughs) But here's what he's saying, right? He's saying death, death is the great equalizer. And it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. Like it devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor. Like no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how good you've been or how bad you've been, we are all going to die. It's inescapable. So throughout, the teacher considers all our activities and and false hopes, the things that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance, things like wealth, success, social status, pleasure, Like you can spend your whole life chasing and trying to grasp onto any of these. I mean, take wealth or like climbing in your career or success at your thing, whatever your thing is. Think about all the stress and all of the toll that it takes on you. Think about the anxiety and the sleepless nights. Think about the relational costs and other sacrifices you have to make along the way. And by the time you finally accrue wealth, you're too old to enjoy it anyway. And when you try to pass on your legacy to the next generation, they might not even care about it or value anything that you did. Or take pleasure. Like, you you think it'll it'll make life worth it for you. So, like, this, the writer's saying, see if it works. Go for it. Like, live for pleasure, right? Live for your vacations. Travel to exotic places. Eat exotic foods. Do exotic things. Or live for the weekends. Food and drink and friends. Monday always comes. It's all smoke and vapor. Hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. Now, in fairness, the teacher acknowledges that um, there's some really good ideas that come from the book of Proverbs. Acknowledges that living with wisdom and reverence for God, like, these, these have real advantages. Like, if you live by these, on the whole, life will probably go better for you. But in a sense, he says, even these are hevel. Because even if we commit to living by wisdom and reverence for God, they don't guarantee a good life. They don't guarantee good circumstances or happiness. Good people suffer and they die tragically, and horrible people prosper and live long lives. There's just too many exceptions. 
And so, for the teacher, even wisdom and reverence for God are, are in a sense, hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma, like this vapor that you can't hold on to. Wisdom doesn't work the way that you think it should all the time. Sometimes you do exactly the right thing, and it doesn't work out for you at all. So, what's the way forward? Well, paradoxically, it says it's, it's letting go. It's ceasing to grasp. It's acknowledging the sheer reality of Hevel. It's accepting that all of life is out of your control. All through, the teacher talks about the gifts of God, like the simple good things in life, friendship or family or a good meal or a sunny day. It says it's like you can't ensure that your life is filled with these and you're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I, when I let go of trying to control life and I adopt a posture of trust in God, it liberates, it liberates me to enjoy life as it actually comes to me, life as I actually experience it. It frees me to enjoy the present gifts of God in my life. Not as I, as I think life ought to be, but as it actually is, because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel. As sobering as is. As, as, that, as they may be, the author just sort of lets us sit in the teacher's words. And then at the end, the author speaks up, and he brings the teacher's thoughts to a conclusion. And he explains that while the teacher appears to be devaluing wisdom, what he's actually doing is offering a deeper wisdom, the deepest wisdom of all, wisdom that accounts for the random, unpredictable nature of reality. Okay, so here's, here's the conclusion of the author, the final words of the book. Besides being wise himself, the quester, the teacher, also taught others knowledge. He weighed, examined, and arranged many proverbs. The quester did his best to find the right words and write the plain truth. The words of the wise taught us to live well. They're like nails hammered home, holding life together. They are given by God, the one shepherd. But regarding anything beyond this, dear friend, go easy. There's no end to the publishing of books, and constant study wears you out, so you're no good for anything else. The last and final word is this. Fear God, do what he tells you, and that's it. Eventually, God will bring everything that we do out into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether it's good or evil. So the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge our false hopes and remind us that time and death make most of our life out of control. But what gives true meaning is the hope of coming justice. The hope that one day God will enter and clear away for us all of the hevel. A sentiment that Paul echoed almost a thousand years later okay, in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this, he says, we know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our, incomplete, our incompletes will be canceled. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Man, that sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. So you guys, the, uh, the Bible Project team did a like, series on the wisdom literature in the Bible, so a video on Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, and then Job, and um, of course, I want to show you the one on Ecclesiastes, and I'll, I'll forewarn you, this is a little different than ones that you may have seen before, it is weirdly artsy, and a little like, woo, like, what were they smoking when they did that, um, and it's Hebel, yeah, it's all smoke, so the production of this video is a lot like Ecclesiastes, it's just kind of like, whoa, let's roll it. 
We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life. But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down, and he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time, or as the critic says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago, and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. So, on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born, and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars, and those planets, they change over time and eventually burn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation, that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals. Death. All people. The righteous and the wicked. The good and the bad. Those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not. They all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness. Then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words, The race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life... Then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now, throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times, he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success. But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with people that you care about. The simple things in life. Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes.
Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places. And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the heaven and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he will bring us the final, much-needed perspective on our journey into wisdom. About a thousand years after Ecclesiastes was written, in Palestine, a rabbi from Nazareth turned the world upside down, and he started healing people and doing miracles and teaching stuff. And before long, the whole region turned out to come and hear him, and he went up on a hillside so he could be heard. And he laid out a totally different approach to human flourishing. He talked about the love of God for all, no matter, no matter who they are, no matter what they're going through, no matter their background. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He talked about what it looks like to, to learn to trust God as Father. And in the middle of the message that changed the world, Jesus riffed on a thousand, on like thousand-year-old ideas from Ecclesiastes. And here's what he said. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Now, Jesus is not advocating irresponsibility, right? He's not saying, hey, don't even bother filling out the application. You know, somehow God's just going to get you into that school, or, or the job will just fall into your lap, or, you know, don't bother studying, Somehow God will just miraculously give you the right answers when, when, <laughs> when the test is set in front of you, Brooklyn. <laughs> and he is definitely not implying, hey, don't use like wise financial investing and saving practices. Just trust that when you retire, God will miraculously provide all that you need so that you can live at the lifestyle you want to be living at. He's not saying that. He's simply saying you don't have to stress and cling and manipulate and lie and scheme like so many in our world do to build a life. God is with you, and he will always care for you. Trust him and learn to live in calm and peace. He goes on. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And Jesus is pleading with them to consider how big is God and how important are you to him? And he just says, look at your father's world how he cares for the birds and dresses the flowers and takes care of the grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Do you trust that God can and will take care of you? So at, at the heart of worry is a lack of, of confidence in God, of trust. We struggle to trust today that God's going to care for us tomorrow. Like in the middle of, the today, of today, I start worrying about tomorrow, Right? And what I do is I, I reach into tomorrow and I start grabbing hold of all of the things that I think might be there, all of tomorrow's concerns. And what I do is these things that I can do nothing about, I bring them right into my day today. I drag them right into my world today. And Jesus is saying, worry, worry, it's really all about the future. He says, so, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? It's all future. And then he says, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
Now, the word pagan here is not like a derogatory term at all. It simply means people who don't know God and what he's like. People who don't know your heavenly father. People who don't know how he loves and cares for them. People who worship gods that have no compassion. He's saying, you know you are loved. You know your heavenly father cares for you. But also, you need to trust that your heavenly father knows what you need better than you do. So here's what's interesting. We can be certain that we know what we need. And we're sure that if we do not get that thing, our life is going to fall apart, right? But, and I know this is a crazy thought, but what if we don't know what we need nearly as well as we think we do? Because we, we think stuff like, oh man, like, I have to have this job, or I have to get this promotion. Or we think, oh man, I have to get this girl, or I have to get this guy. I have to own a house. I have to upgrade to a better house. You know what? Because I can't be happy until, and then you just fill in the blank. Jesus is affirming the ancient words. It's all hevel. Maybe God is trying to give you something better, something deeper. I mean, have you ever chased after something in your life, like really chased after something hard in your life and then not gotten it, and then years later, looked back on your life and thought, why was that such a big deal to me at the time? Does anybody know the old Garth Brooks song? Unanswered prayer? No, that's, that's a different one. Unanswered prayer. He goes to the high school, he goes to the high school reunion and he sees the girl that he was in love with in high school and he had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would make her his, right? And then he goes to the, to the, uh, to the reunion and he looks at her and he's like, hmm. And he looks at his wife and he's like, God, thank you for unanswered prayer, Right? Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And that's right, I quoted a country song in here. That's right. Yeehaw. And then he gives an alternative to all this worry. He says, but seek first his kingdom. So what should you do instead of worry? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. See, worry is about chasing things that you can't ever get. Oh, why can't you get them? Well, you can't get them because they're tomorrow. So Jesus says, what if you actually do something about today? What if instead of spending all your mental and emotional energy on things you can't do anything about, what if you focused on the people and the issues that are right in front of you today? What if you entrusted yourself to God to impact the world that's actually around you today? What if you blessed every person you can bless and dealt with every issue you can deal with in the way that God is inviting you to deal with it today? So here's a little summary of the the concept Jesus is inviting us to live. He's saying when you're tempted to steal from tomorrow, look for a way to participate in what God is doing today. Jesus is saying, instead of worrying about all that, that, you can't go, that you can't control that could go wrong tomorrow, I'm inviting you to trust me with tomorrow and look around and find a way to participate with me in what I'm doing right now in this day. And then he goes on and, and wraps up his teaching on worry. And in this final verse, he just kind of relabels worry, like all worry. And he helps us see it for what it is. And I, I think this is brilliant. Uh, before we get to this, I want this to be like as personal for you as possible. And so I'm going to pause here and just ask you to think about this season of your life. What are you worried about? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that keeps you from being fully present with the people that are around you or the issues that are in front of you? What distracts you from loving the people that are right in front of you? Jesus says, I, I don't want you to worry about that. He says, therefore, do not worry about, and I want, what I want you to do is, in your mind, insert your thing into the blank. What goes in that space for you? Is it, is it the kids, your career, your finances, your marriage, your relationship status, your health? Like what goes in that space for you? So get a word or a phrase in your mind because Jesus says, whatever it is that you would put in that blank, 
from now on, if you're my follower, I want you to relabel it tomorrow. Because you're not really worried about the economy. You're worried about tomorrow. You're not really worried about the job. You're worried about tomorrow. And so call it what it is. And when you worry about whatever it is you worry about, you can say to yourself, you know what? I'm not worrying about tomorrow because Jesus asked me to trust him with tomorrow. Now, this is like amazingly simple and really, really difficult to do, right? And maybe some of you are listening to this and you're thinking, listen, pastor, if you knew my life, if you knew what I worry about, if you knew what, uh, like, what I'm facing, you'd be like, oh, man, that's huge. In your case, you get a pass. You just go ahead and worry. You just worry your pretty little head off. In fact, maybe, maybe you're even like, you know what? I have a right to worry about this. Like, this is so big and this is so scary that I have a right to let it consume me. I mean, I guess I would say, well, of course you do. It's your life. But what do you gain from that? Like, you have a right to wreck your day today over what you can't control tomorrow. You have a right to be so consumed with what might go wrong tomorrow that you miss the beauty and the people that are right in front of you today. I mean, like, is that really a right that you, you, you want to claim? And I, so I just want to say this is, like, I recognize this is hard. I do. And I, and I struggle myself to do this every day. I'm, I'm not telling you what's easy. I'm telling you what Jesus offers. I'm explaining the better way to live. And you guys, we know it's the better way to live. We know it's the better way to live. We all know it. Because, and here's how you know. Imagine if I said, instead of saying, like, hey, trust in Jesus, I, 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 you came in here and I just said, hey, trust in worry. Imagine that I said, you know, you, you want to be, you want to live a productive and beautiful life, then you should worry as much as possible. And then I started like quoting Bible verses to you, like Proverbs 3, but just a little bit altered, like, trust in worry with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge worry and worry will make your path straight. Imagine I stood up here telling you to worry more. You'd be like, shut up. You're an idiot, Jason. That never works. Yeah. To which part? <laughs> okay, can I just say, like, I know. So why would you want to cling to worry as if it's a right? And you guys, this is basic, and we know that it's true. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus taught this at the beginning of his ministry, all throughout his ministry, and then at the very end, he comes, he comes back to it again. In his last night, he's explaining to the disciples that he's going away, and the disciples are freaking out, and they're like, where are you going, and, and why can't we go with you? And he's like, you just can't. You just can't. I know this is foggy and murky for you, and you can't see it, and you don't get it. You're just going to have to trust me on this. And Peter's like, well, I'm going with you. And Jesus is like, Peter, stop it, <laughs> right? There you go again, stop it. And then Jesus leans in and he says the most beautiful thing. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Because my, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare, prepare, prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Don't worry, because no matter what happens, and there's going to be some crazy stuff that happens, no matter what happens, I'm coming back for you. I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you, and it is going to be magnificent. It is going to be beautiful. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will come back, and I will take you to be with me where I'm going. I promise. A few, hour, few hours later, he'd be arrested. And all hell would break loose. And Jesus would be tried, convicted, and crucified right in front of them. And the disciples would be shaken to their core. But on the third day, they'd see him again. He would come back on that first Easter. And suddenly, some of the hevel started to be, to be chased away. 
And this all became very real. Prior to seeing Jesus raised from the dead, much of what he said made no sense. But when they saw him alive, when they saw death defeated, it dawned on them, wow, even death is not the end. Jesus has the power over death. There's nothing that can hurt us in a permanent way. Nothing. We don't have to be afraid of death because God is with us and he's got us even on the other side of death. And this is why the invitation of Jesus makes sense. His, his invitation is so simple. If you participate in my kingdom today, I will look out for you tomorrow. It's an invitation that he extends to us every moment. And it's an invitation that's changed my, that's changed my experience of life's realities. And I know that that's true for many of you. It is, it's so true. The thing is, this is not a one-time decision that we make, like the moment we, we, we're, we decide to become a Christian. It, it's a decision that we must make again and again, day after day. Because at any moment, we can decide to chase after the smoke, hoping that it's going to lead to the happiness that we seek, or we can live with open hands, not trying to grasp what we could never possibly hold. We can participate with Jesus in the kingdom today, do what can be done today, love those in front of us today, enjoy the simple things today, friendship, family, good meal, and then with open hands, trust him with tomorrow. And what's at stake for us is peace in life. Father in heaven, I thank you for the life of Jesus. The incarnation, God with us, showing us to the full extent what it looks like to live as a human being surrendered and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the way that he demonstrated in the hardest, darkest times of his life what it looks like to surrender to you and to say, I trust you, Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, we're wrestling with so much stuff. There's so much coming at us. And the world says, hey, there's a way to happiness. But in reality, it's, it's all smoke. So Jesus, would you show us the way? Would you help us to live with open hands, investing in the issues and the people that are right in front of us today, letting go of the things we cannot control tomorrow, and just walking intimately with you in the power of the Spirit. 